Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. Welcome to The Art of Range. I have with me today in the virtual studio... Uh, both Matt Barnes and Stuart Breck. Stuart is a research wildlife biologist with USDA APHIS, and he's part of the new Colorado State University Center for Human and Carnivore Coexistence out of Fort Collins. Uh, His research is focused mostly on carnivore ecology and behavior, uh, and also minimizing conflict between carnivores and people. Uh, Matt Barnes is a grazing consultant out of Colorado who has a long history as what I call uh, the man in the middle between ranchers and wildlife folks. Uh, Matt and Stuart, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tip. Yeah, thank you for having us. For anybody who is in the world of rangeland-based livestock production, uh, they recognize that the relationships between people and predators and livestock uh, has a long history and, and remains pretty controversial uh, and especially, I think, in the states that that the three of us work in, uh, and so we're gonna we're gonna talk about what we know about uh, those relationships today, and some of the best practices for minimizing conflict uh, and allowing coexistence. But before we dive into some of those topics, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about how the two of you. Uh, came to be speaking to me about this. Uh, Stuart, how did you end up as a carnivore ecologist? Yeah, that's a long story. Um, and it started, and I'll give the short version, but it started uh, where a friend of mine, Doug Smith, um, in 1994, went to Yellowstone to help run the Yellowstone uh, reintroduction project for wolves. And um, he invited me to come out. I was between jobs um, between graduate degrees and, uh, had a month or two to, to, to spare. And so I went out and worked on that, that project. Um, this was in 1995 and I was having a great time watching wolves, recording data on wolves, interacting with grizzly bears and killing elk and living out in the backcountry Yellowstone. And then, um, Doug and Mike Phillips, who was running the project at that time, decided to uh, send me out to a ranch in uh, Montana where one of their wolf packs had dispersed onto this ranch out of the park. And um, that was my really my first introduction to uh, this whole issue. And um, it was, you know, it was one of those forks in the road that were in hindsight pretty meaningful. And, it, it, you know, I was going out as an ecologist to this ranch and I, my job was to live out there for and just monitor these wolves. And, you know, this was in May, it was raining, it was cold and I was living in a tent and, uh, you know, the cowboys were, <laughs> you know, eating, uh, living in the bunkhouse and, um, you know, having these warm meals every day. And, and, uh, at some point the ranch manager said, Hey, you want to come join us? Um, so I came down for breakfast and soon that turned into a dinner. And then I was, uh, living in the bunkhouse. Um, and, uh, and that experience, I spent more time building fence, working with the ranchers, um, and occasionally talking about wolves, um, 
it was a really meaningful experience. And I think, you know, it was one of those things in hindsight it was like, wow, that had a big impact on my career because um, as a, when I went to work for wildlife services and the job I'm currently in, um, that was in 2000, um, I got the job, you know, that was that one of the experiences they were looking for was, you know, what's your philosophy working with ranchers and, and, um, you know, finding the balance and it definitely was that experience was, uh, was a step in that direction. So, um, I've been at the agency now for about 20 years. I was hired to um, develop non-lethal tools for wolf management, predator management, things like that. And that's expanded into all kinds of different um, projects. And um, my job encompasses not only looking at non-lethal tools, but also also lethal tools. And um, But I get all kinds of opportunities to work with different livestock producers and Folks like Matt, who I respect deeply, and his, you know, what he's trying to do, and um, NGOs that have kind of a conservation bent. So it's a, it's a really rich, interesting job, um, job, and I'm um, feel very privileged to be here. I love it, Matt. I don't even know if I described your current occupation accurately. How would you describe yourself, and how did you end up doing what you're doing now? Yeah. So, well, at the moment, I work through a an NGO called Northern Rockies Conservation Cooperative, which is based in northwestern Wyoming, but works throughout Western North America. Um, I've worked for a few other NGOs, government agencies, ranches over the course of the years, and I have my own range consulting business. So, um, yeah, I, I guess I wear a bunch of different hats. And like most people, how I got to where I am today is a an impossible to repeat winding path, but uh, it, it started with chasing black bears out of campgrounds and parking lots, uh, first at a ranch in New Mexico, then in Yosemite National Park, and that evolved to trapping and radio collaring grizzly bears in Idaho, and then I ended up getting a master's degree in range science and uh, called myself a range scientist more than anything else for the last 10 or 20 years. And, um, but I, I was running some cattle in Southwestern Colorado for several years on a, a little custom grazing operation up in the mountains. And I just had a, what I call a green fire moment when I, I realized that we were not losing cattle to these coyotes that had a den right in the middle of my best irrigated pasture, even though, um, those cattle came from a, another ranch where they had been essentially at war with the local coyotes. And I, I just, I had a realization that there might be some things we were doing in managing our, our range and livestock that were also helping us reduce conflict rates. And if, if that was so, that that would be an important tool for carnivore conservation more generally. And, and then since then, I've been trying to figure out how to apply that you know, on a larger scale in places that have wolves and grizzly bears and, um, and with some success and, and, and not always. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, but that's, that's the short version. Good. I often make the mistake of assuming that other people have the same starting point that I do, whether I'm talking to ranchers or agency folks, uh, so I want to avoid making the mistake that everybody who might be listening, especially those that maybe don't come from states where 
predator reintroduction is happening right now. Uh, don't want to make the mistake that people know something about the history of predators in this country and uh, predator suppression and in many cases near eradication. Uh, so I'd like uh, one of you to give your version of a, a brief history of the decline in large predators in the U.S., you know, say since um, white man started moving west and trying to raise livestock out there. It doesn't have to be a book, but uh, the the high points. Oh, I could probably give you a short version of that. Um, so head back about 200 years, and, and North America was full of a whole lot of animals, including uh, wolves across basically almost all of North America, grizzly bears in almost all of the western half of North America, um, cougars throughout most of it, um, coyotes interestingly primarily in the west. Uh, that's changed obviously in the last 200 years, but uh, as a consequence of Euro-American settlement moving west across the continent, well, the vast majority of those animals were killed. Um, so especially, especially wolves and grizzly bears. Um, black bears managed to survive, uh, probably because they're more generalist than they are predatory. Um, cougars managed to survive primarily because they're so hard to find and so hard to kill. Um, and coyotes actually thrive. So when wolves were killed out, the coyote population essentially exploded and expanded eastward across the continent. Um, in a, a, a phenomenon that ecologists would call mesopredator release. Uh, but it's essentially evolution appearing before our eyes as a, an empty niche was filled. Um, so that's that's a big part that, of the history of carnivores in North America that's not well recognized outside of the ecology world. Um, but uh, there were probably something like 50,000 grizzly bears at the time Lewis and Clark traveled across the continent um, and maybe a similar number of wolves. Um, both of those were uh, very nearly extirpated from the lower 48, except for just a couple of pockets of individuals. Um, and they've been brought back um, through um, mostly under the Endangered Species Act. For, and grizzly bears have not actually been reintroduced. They just, the populations have been encouraged to rebound where they are. There's still a small number. There's probably less than 2,000 grizzly bears in the lower 48 right now in, in five populations. Um, and uh, Stuart could probably tell you about how many wolves there are. Um, yeah, quick question before we go there. Would you say that uh, those predators were removed uh, because people were experiencing uh, you know, significant, economically significant livestock kills. In other words, those animals were spending a fair bit of, were getting quite a bit of their diet from domestic livestock instead of wild animals. Or was it primarily because, you know, humans have always had uh, a, a rough relationship with predators. And in general, the feeling is that the fewer the better if we're in the same space. <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah, it's both. Uh, so, so what happened, well, humans have always had a rough relationship with predators and that's the case all over the world. Um, there's a lot of places where 
people kill predators, a few places in the world that predators kill people. Um, it, but in most of the world, it's not always been pretty, but people and predators usually find some way to coexist where some of those predators are getting killed, but not always. Um, in the case of North America, um, you have to see this against the background of the history and the culture. So, um, and what was happening to all the rest of the native wildlife at the time. So in, in the history of North American wildlife, we're talking about the era of market hunting when there was absolutely no regulation of hunting game animals and all, all the North American game animals were heavily, heavily hunted at the same time that European Americans were moving westward across the continent. Um, and some of this was intentional. Um, that there was a quote from a, a quote from an essay by Nathan Sarah a few years back that I liked about sustainability. He said, it's not that beaver trapping and bison hunting are unsustainable in and of themselves, but they were unsustainable at the levels that they were being applied in the mid 1800s. You yeah. can kill some buffalo. You just can't kill all of them and expect them to last. Right. That, that's exactly right. Of course, the killing of the buffalo was also uh, one aspect of the the taking of the land from Native Americans. So mm -hmm. th that was a that was a federal policy as well as a case of unregulated hunting. So uh, I think it's important to recognize that. And so as all the large game animals were heavily hunted, the native carnivore populations did start killing livestock in significant numbers uh, because livestock had essentially replaced not just the bison, but also elk and, and deer in other parts of the West. So um, at that time, there were a lot of livestock killed and that's, that part isn't made up. That's known for sure. And that, that resulted mm -hmm. in essentially a, a government funded campaign to exterminate a lot of these predators, especially wolves. Um, I think there was a $2 bounty on wolves for a very long time. And it probably never would have worked without government support. But I think it's important to recognize that essentially all of American society was behind this effort at the time. It wasn't just the ranching community. Mm -hmm. Stuart, anything you want to add? Yeah, I think um, I think Matt covered it well. I, I think one of the really interesting things about today is you know, is that we are, you know, we're, we're kind of riding that wave of, uh, you know, having systems without, um, uh, you know, large carnivores in them. And it wasn't until the seventies or so where that started changing. We started, uh, you know, stop the, the, the widespread, widespread poisoning and the suppression of the, the different carnivore populations. And, and started letting them recover and you know the, we've done a good job between then and now um in terms of uh you know black bears and cougars and coyotes as matt mentioned and then wolves and grizzly bears and so i i mentioned that just because you know we've got recovering carnivore populations and we got landscapes where people haven't had a lot of experience living with them so it's uh it brings on some really interesting and new challenges yeah, and I would add one thing to that, Stuart, which is that 
the entire discipline of range science evolved in this time of very few predators. In fact, uh, the profession came into existence at essentially the nadir of North American predator populations. And actually, to go back to Nathan Sayer, if you read his book of the history of range science, he argues that it essentially began with the predator-proof pasture experiment in Oregon. In Oregon. Yeah. yeah. And, and so one of the blind spots of our profession was for decades, we had this assumption that we were dealing with a landscape of few or no predators. Mm-hmm. And how would you say that predators responded since the 1970s when a lot of the large scale, particularly poisoning efforts, but also some, uh, you know, bounty trapping was ended? How did predator populations bounce back, uh, you know, without active reintroduction like we've had over the last 15, 20 years? Well, some. You know, there's no generalization that applies to every predator species. It, certainly, the wolves needed a uh, a boost, and that re- that occurred in 1994-95 when uh, wolves were reintroduced into Idaho and, and the Yellowstone. Um, and as Matt mentioned, the grizzly bear uh, recovery has been an ongoing effort since you know kind of late 70s, um, um, and is you know is benefited from you know some really good work in terms of protecting bears but also trying to minimize conflict and, and such but uh, black bears uh, have done well um, kind of without a whole lot of help um, in some cases there's been efforts to reintroduce them and things but uh, um, but then in, I think the same is true for mountain lions you know they've, they've kind of recovered without a whole lot of uh, um, active recovery efforts. And bears are a little more generalist in their habitat requirements and and dietary needs, right? So they they seem to thrive and at least live in quite a bit of North America. Like I grew up in northern Arkansas, and at one point, uh, black bear oil was one of the primary exports from that region. That didn't end so well for the black bear, but they're beginning to come back. Uh, but but you also find black bears, you know, everywhere else in the country. It seems. Yeah, I think there are probably twenty six, twenty seven states now, and some of those, some of the populations are doing really well. You know, like in in Florida, you know, they have thousands of black bears, and um, across the West, I think you know there, there's a robust populations of black bears throughout the West, and um, so yeah, that um, that's a uh, I think. Like you said, they've benefited because they they're very much general species and not strictly carnivores, and probably not not the threat um, that uh, some people might deem more strict carnivores like wolves and, and mountain lions. Yeah, in terms of current actual numbers of known depredation, you know, what are the species that that cause the most economic damage? If we're talking about say cattle and sheep. Yeah, by far and away, it's coyotes. Um, right, just by virtue of sheer numbers. Sheer numbers, yep. That's uh, that's the, the the number one, you know, species that that uh, is a a concern. You know, if we look at the kind of across the country and it industry industry wide. And what are some of the things that are being done uh, to to minimize? I'm aware of you know for more active 
projects trying to minimize conflict with wolves because there's a lot larger interest in uh, not killing off wolves that are that are trying to come back uh, you know we we don't apply the same restraint to coyotes because they're ubiquitous and and have large numbers but uh, I guess we can we can jump into talking about control and conflict avoidance strategies here what is if anything is effective in minimizing those conflicts with coyotes well there's um, you know just like any of these species we we talk about you know there's a lot of different ways to look at it um, and I think taking a sort of an integrated approach is 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 probably the best way to to, to think about uh, work like this, especially with coyotes, and that you know there there are there's certainly lethal control that occurs, um, but there's also a lot of uh, non-lethal um, preventative methods out there that uh, that people use, and uh, and some of that you know some of those preventative methods um, include you know things that livestock producers do, you know night pinning. Uh, young livestock to using guard dogs to, um, you know, different management practices associated with their livestock. Uh, you can kind of turn into, you know, more techniques that are oriented towards, um, you know, like the, the predator management. So we know that, you know, in, inhibiting reproduction in coyotes can can really influence depredation rates. Um, um, the, the, the problem with that tool is we don't have a good way of inhibiting reproduction at a sort of a cost effective way. Um, but there's also, you know, different non-lethal tools that you can, from, you know, lights and sound devices that you can use that work on a temporary basis. And then, um, you know, you move into the, <clears throat> into the lethal control methods, which include, you know, really targeting problem individuals to, um, you know, taking a more um, general approach of trying to suppress the coyote population temporarily. So, all, you know, all those tools come into play at different different levels, and um, my agency gets involved in a lot of that. But there's also a lot of other, um, you know, private companies that do similar kinds of work. Yeah, you know, I would add to that just a little bit, which most of the the tools that we've come up with are, are kind of gadget type tools. And that's the one thing that the conservation and science community has been fairly good at coming up with, but all of those tools work, but they all have serious limitations. So um, it, it's not like we've got all the tools in the toolbox and we can all now live happily ever after. There's, there's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, but I'd also point out that most of those tools are, focused on the potential predator uh, as opposed to being focused on the livestock. So I would say that there's at least sort of two competing per perspectives here, and it's important to be able to see it from both of those at the same time. So most of what you would read about carnivore livestock coexistence issues is really heavily focused on the carnivores. You know, the idea that it's, it's all about the wolves and how, what do you do with the wolves and it's a wolf problem or it's a bear problem, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think that's only one half of the truth. The other half of the truth is what can we do 
with our livestock to prevent these problems in the first place or to reduce the vulnerability? You know, can we can we look at sort of nature's model for ways that we could manage our livestock that make them perhaps just a little bit less vulnerable to where we might use those other tools a little bit less? Yeah, I think the focus on the predator also uh, ignores the the more holistic nature of some of the of some of the problems. Uh, you know, ranchers would say that the problem with predators like wolves isn't so much the economic impact of direct mortality, but uh, you know some of the other types of stress that it puts on a herd, especially a herd that's out in the middle of nowhere that may have effects on reproduction and, and those are some, or, or gain, uh, body condition, how well they respond to people. You know, those are potentially larger economic impacts than, than a direct kill. Uh, but those are also things that maybe you can address as much by, um, you know, through herd management or animal husbandry as through doing something to the predators that are, uh, that are causing the problem. Uh, how would you describe, Matt, some of the, um, you know, lesser known effects on livestock of having large predators around? Yeah, you're exactly right, Tip. Th- those other effects are real, uh, but they're very difficult to measure. So, uh, and they're all they're all related to stress. And of course, a big question is how much stress do cattle actually experience just because there's a wolf or a bear nearby? And it probably all depends on how that interaction between those animals ends up evolving. So um, cattle probably don't experience a lot of stress just because a wolf or two trot by and don't do anything. But if those wolves initiate a kill attempt, it will be highly stressful even though the vast majority of kill attempts are unsuccessful. Um, For instance, there's evidence from Yellowstone that Mm -hmm. one out of every 15 to 20 kill attempts that wolves initiate on elk actually succeeds. So they don't have a number yet for that on kill attempts with cattle, for example, but but it's less than one might think. But you're right. The the real Mm -hmm. effect of that, though, is that you've got animals, in this case, cattle or sheep that are experiencing a very high level of stress and that has cascading consequences in terms of nutrition, reproduction, uh, weight gains. Um, And so, you know, for example, if your entire herd has an average 20 pounds less this year than they did last year, that costs you a lot of money when you add it all up. So, um, but this isn't experienced by all cattle in wolf or grizzly country. This is experienced by those cattle or sheep, which are having a negative interaction with wolves or grizzly bears, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I could, I could add a little bit of that, a little bit to that as well. In that, um, you know, what, at least one of the points Matt made was, you know, this, this notion of um, managing this issue by managing some the livestock in different ways and um, that can you know that there can be a real uh, benefit for the you know for the tools that we do have the non-lethal tools we do have for managing carnivores um, you know you get some benefit by um, having 
the livestock managed, for example, if you, if you're, if you're, you know, night pinning your sheep, it, um, there's, there's a, some of the non-lethal tools become much more effective because you're dealing with a smaller, uh, smaller space to protect. Um, and so, you know, those tools become more effective that way. So there's, you know, there's a lot of, um, interaction between, um, you know, all this, uh, whether we're talking lethal management of carnivores or non-lethal management of carnivores or management of livestock, it's, uh, becomes a real integrated system. And I think, you know, we're really just starting to think that way and starting to think about kind of the holistic nature of this and even expanding it into, you know, what, how does that, that kind of management activity influence other aspects of the, of the, you know, the, the grazing system. Matt, you mentioned that, that you had found some, uh, you had seen differences on a ranch that you were managing in coyote depredation on uh, cattle, I assume. What what was different about the place you were on versus the one next door, the one you'd been on previously? Yeah. So so in that case, like I mentioned, there was a, a coyote den right in the middle of our best pasture. And we actually didn't lose any cattle to coyotes or black bears uh, or cougars. Uh, this was in Western Colorado. I didn't have wolves or grizzly bears there, obviously. Um, but other other places nearby were feeling that they needed to kill coyotes. And, and the ranch where these cattle spent the rest of their lives was killing a lot of coyotes. Um, and, and so what we were doing that was a little bit different was we had a well, we were using the holistic plan grazing model, and so it, which is a variation of rotational grazing. Um, although a lot of people would get really hung up on the semantics here, but um, for this purpose, the important thing is we had cattle in one large herd, and the landscape divided up into pastures, and we had a plan for moving those cattle sequentially through those pastures. So. You know, by definition, in range science terms, that's rotational grazing. Um, of course, there's more to it than that. We were using the holistic plan grazing model, um, and there's there, so there's more than just putting up some fences and moving cattle around. Um, but the important thing here mm-hmm. is we were trying to sort of recreate what we think is nature's model in the ranching world, and that would that would be a relatively large number of cattle but moved fairly often uh, from one place to another. And, and that that actually came to a large degree from Alan Savory's observations in Africa, where, um, where you see large numbers of grazing animals, um, more so than we would see here in North America. But in ecology, it's generally thought that what we now call the herd evolved in response to predation pressure. Um, and, and there are several reasons for that. Um, so I, I won't go into all of them, but the, the general idea is that each animal is safer when it is closer to other potential prey animals. So even if you know that the potential predator is going to be successful at killing at least one prey animal, it's still in the prey animal's best interest to form a herd for their own defense. So, um, so in short, it's safety in numbers, but combine that with frequent moving so that they're not always in one place because predators return to the same places over and over again after they've been successful. Uh, 
And so, you know, we were applying this for, for range management reasons. We, we weren't doing it because we thought it would prevent predation because we didn't even have a predation problem. Um, but what I kind of realized was, you know, one day I was sitting there watching these cattle and I was watching the coyotes and then the coyotes and the ranch dog saw each other for the first time. And, <laughs> and it was a mess, you know? Um, but what, what quickly happened, which was more interesting was that the cattle would not allow the ranch dog to be there anymore. They, they realized that they could mob up and function as a herd rather than as a bunch of individuals. And, and that herd all acting together as one large sort of meta organism, if you will, they ran the dog out of the pasture and they weren't, this wasn't like curiosity that we've all seen with cattle. This was, they were going to trample her to death if she didn't get out of there. And, and I, and that was mm -hmm. what I call my green fire moment. That was when I realized, Hey, there is something about what we're doing here with these cattle that changed their behavior. And, and on some level, and I don't know how this works in a cow's mind, but they figured out that they could run off predators if they just did it together. And, and our, our management with these relatively small pastures, uh, probably combined with our halfway successful attempts at low-stress livestock handling, really encouraged this herd instinct. And I would say that it was that herd instinct, um, as much as it was the small pastures or the rotation, that enabled those cattle to start running off predators. Um, and that's been seen in the wildlife world many times it's probably pretty well documented in wildlife just not so well documented with livestock um, but it was that realization that made me think hey if we could figure out how to apply grazing management and low stress livestock handling in ways that could prevent some of these conflicts with large carnivores it would be a win-win so solution for just about everybody yeah <clears throat> it seems like a lot of the conflicts uh, at least in the Northwest, are in places that are forested environments that are not quite as conducive to, you know, say a group of four or 500 mother cows sticking together as a large herd. I'm not so sure it's impossible, but it, it definitely is different than if they're in a uh, grassland or a shrubland. Have you seen, have you seen that, uh, that herd instinct function when animals are in a forested setting? Yes, but you're right. It's a lot harder to do. Um, so where I've seen it successful, it's, it's been places where the ranch was really dedicated to this idea and, um, and especially really dedicated to the low stress livestock handling mm -hmm. part. Um, and, and this, I know this is pretty esoteric, but there, if, if that's done really well, it does seem to increase the animal's natural herding instinct. And, and that, of course, is their natural instinct anyway. But the way we handle our livestock really tends to either increase that or decrease that. So if we act like a predator, then they're not getting rewarded when they do the right thing because we... We, from their perspective, it's like they're getting punished whenever we do something that they mm -hmm. don't like. So, um, so you have to try to think about it from the from the cattle's perspective and as how they experience their interactions with us as handlers. 
But uh, anyway, the, uh, what I was trying to get around to was where people have developed herds that have a really strong herd instinct where their interactions with their handlers are usually relatively not stressful events. Uh, they tend to have that herd instinct and it tends to carry over time. So the only way to, to have it in a forested environment is to build it during the whatever part of the year that you're not in that forested environment. Right. It's really difficult to, you can't start that out on a forested mountain range. You got to start it at home in a, some kind of a pasture setting and, and build it slowly over time. But it will last uh, we, we did some experiments in the mountains of western Montana where we found that if we, if we could successfully herd cattle for the first few weeks of the summer using those low-stress livestock handling methods, by which I mean the methods developed by Bud Williams, um, and I will be the first to admit that I'm not perfect at doing this, um, but we found that we could increase the herd instinct and that that herd instinct would, would kind of stay in place over the course of an entire summer up in the mountains, as long as we didn't fall back on our old habits of punishing them every time we got frustrated that we weren't getting the exact result we mm -hmm. wanted. So, um, but you're absolutely right. It's much harder to do in large country, forested country, mountainous country. Um, so, yeah, the, the take-home message I found was that you got to – do it where it's easy and and then develop that instinct in your herd so that they still have it in places where it's harder to develop it. Yeah. Stuart, on the on the predator side, uh, it seems like the main social flashpoint is around wolves. That's you know, they're politically charged. Um they're uh just a different, a different situation than coyotes. What would you? What are some of the things that you've seen work in uh, trying to reduce conflict between people and wolves and livestock? Yeah, you're right. The wolves are a different, um, different story. Or they're, you know, first they're they're much more effective predators, um, and so they become a lot more of a threat to cattle than um than say coyotes in general um you know they they can take down adult cattle if they you know if, if they if they want to and um whereas a coyote you know you really don't see that um so that's one thing the other you know the um the other aspect of this is that um um you know there's some deep cultural I don't know how else to say it's stuff associated with wolves that, um, you know, that for whatever reason, it, it brings out a lot of emotions in, in people. And, uh, that, you know, that's on all sides of the, of the wolf issue, whether you're pro wolf or anti wolf. Um, and so, you know, that, that's a component of what, um, wildlife managers are, are dealing with is just like, you know, this kind of this cultural, um, aspect of, of wolves. And part of that is, well, you know, having the federal government come in here and reintroduce wolves. And so you, you know, you, you, you develop these different attitudes and beliefs and perceptions that, um, that carry through the culture. Um, and so, you know, management of the wolf issue becomes as much 
about managing wolves as it does about, you know, managing people or, or mm-hmm. educating people or, or uh, thinking about people and how they fit into the system. Um, and so that's a really important component of this discussion. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, how we manage predators or how we manage wolves, you know, one of the interesting things about wolves is that they're, they're kind of scaredy cats in some, in some ways, you know, we've been able to take advantage of what we call neophobic behavior, which is, um, afraid of new things. Um, and so, you know, there's been some tools that we've been successful in bringing into, to the management equation for wolves. And one of those is, is something called fladry. You know, it's just basically a rope with, with flags hanging off of it. Um, and, um, you know, it, it moves around in the wind and is, um, provides a, you know, a kind of a low cost, fairly low cost technique where you can, you know, string it up around a small pasture and, and provide effective protection, um, um, at, on a temporary basis. So we can, you know, we can, we can t- take advantage of those kinds of, um, discoveries about, you know, wolf behavior and we have, um, and that becomes a important uh, component of this story. Um, but I'll, you know, I'll, I'll come back to, you know, a lot of this is is how we, um, as um, you know, as researchers or as scientists or as managers, how we start integrating people into the equation in better better ways. And um, you know, it's it's working with those producers that are struggling and and um, you know, might need some, some help figuring, figuring out some of these tools or might, uh, benefit from thinking about things in different ways. Um, and I think, I think what you need out there is practitioners that are, they're really understanding of a lot of different aspects of whether it's livestock, uh, behavior to carnivore behavior to human behavior and are able to recognize in what contexts and what you know situations are are different tools, different methods going to work, and so it becomes there's a there's a lot of art to this as well as some science. Uh, you mentioned night pinning. Uh, to what extent has that been tried and, and worked with cattle? I can see how that makes a lot of sense with sheep, uh, but in a lot of range or forested grazing situations. Um, you know, most people don't have the kind of human presence or ability to control animals that would be necessary to pin up cattle for the night in any large quantity. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you. I mean, in some ways, uh, sheep are easier to deal with, um, uh, in terms of, you know, dealing with some of these predator, uh, problems. And cattle aren't Um, quite as helpless either. I realize that. Yeah. And say, right. And so, you know, comparing across livestock is, is probably not a uh, safe thing to do because, you know, the sheep are much different than cattle, but, um, but you're, you are correct in that um, some of these techniques of managing livestock probably don't work as well for cattle. I'll, I'll defer to, to Matt on this, but it is probably one of the bigger challenges that we face it's these remote grazing allotments where people are used to putting out their livestock and, you know, checking on them occasionally. And then after a few months coming back and, and, and 
picking up the livestock. Those those are super challenging systems um, where you know we're, we got a lot of work to do to, to figure out how to to optimize the existence of large carnivores on that landscape with the livestock. Yeah, you know, I I agree with all of that. I I would say that um, if if you consider the the different ways that the sheep and cattle industries have evolved in the American West, it, it's kind of instructive actually. Um, the the sheep industry has really never been predator free the way that cattle have been. Um, for instance, the sheep industry has always had herders. Um, part of that is because it's it's simply easier to herd sheep. Their natural herding instinct is higher than that of cattle, but um, but the sheep industry has never been able to just turn animals out and forget about them for days, weeks, or months at a time, the way that cattle people have. Uh, the ranch I was on in Western Colorado, for example, that used to be a sheep ranch years ago. Actually, all of that country was old sheep country, but uh, I, I think they probably switched to cattle for a combination of reasons, one of which was that they thought it would be less labor intensive. And that was probably partly true. Uh, although they eventually discovered that um, they had to replace those herders with some cross fencing for grazing management reasons. And I, I think that, you know, maybe in the bigger picture, we should look at it like, well, we could accomplish multiple things with having herders and cowboys back out on the landscape that we can't really accomplish with fences, which the real purpose of fences is essentially to babysit livestock in absence of living people. But the best tools are the best tools are always the ones with brains. And by that, I mean, number one, humans, and number two, livestock guardian animals, especially livestock guardian dogs. Uh, that's probably of all the tools, that's the one that's the most well studied. But, um, but most of those studies are essentially social science studies reviewing um, what people who've used them think about them. Um, it's a lot harder to act to just directly measure in an objective sense how effective they are. But we know that they are effective. Uh, of course, using them with cattle is a little different than using them with sheep and using them in places that have actual wolves instead of just coyotes is also different. So one of the reasons that livestock guardian dogs work so well in places that have coyotes is dogs are essentially analogous to a wolf pack. Um, dogs technically almost are wolves. So, uh, and wolves and coyotes do not get along. Um, but when you have actual wolves out there, it's a little bit different. So, um, for livestock guardian dogs to work, you got to have more of them and they probably have to be larger and more aggressive than the water collie. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there, there's, there's active research going on in that realm as far as, you know, which breeds might be better. And it, it's, it's probably, it probably goes back to the old adage that it's more the size of the fight in the dog than mm -hmm. vice versa. But, uh, uh, but the sort of the, the simple, easy to say and remember maximum is something like outweigh and outnumber. But you have to have, have to realize that if, if you've got actual wolves out there, um, one of the costs of having livestock guardian dogs is that some of them probably are going to get killed sooner or later. Um, so, mm -hmm. so it's uh, 
it's important to realize that when we advocate for these tools, we're not saying that they're 100% effective all the time. It's all of them work some of the time. And, and it's a real art to figure out what combinations are going to work in any one situation. And, and we also probably have to acknowledge that when we say that it's working, we mean that the rate of conflict is less than it would be otherwise, not that it's always zero. It does seem, too, that there's some economy of scale uh, in terms of being able to, to use some of those different strategies. I really like philosophically the idea of uh, cattle being herded and having somebody attending to them most of the time, <clears throat> more like you would with sheep. Uh, but that obviously isn't economically feasible with a group of 50 cow-calf pairs, for example. Uh, you right. know, there's some there's some... Um, threshold below which it's not feasible to pay a person to do that. And the kind of person you're paying to do that really has to, is, is sort of skilled labor. You're not, this is not $10 an hour work, I don't think. And so um, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on, you know, where that I realize it changes by context, but, but in general, uh, any ideas on, on where that threshold might be <laughs> or yeah. strategies for how to get there? You know, if you've got people that have 150 cows, you know, are there examples of places where four of those operators pulled together so that you had a group of 700 instead of 150? Yeah. You know, unfortunately there's not many great examples of that, but that's exactly right. Um, and, and maybe I should preface this by, by saying there's a couple things we might, need to acknowledge about our own industry here in the ranching world. Um, one of those is that the size of most ranches from a simple economic perspective is too small. So the way that the West has evolved geopolitically for a hundred years is that we have now essentially what worked a hundred years ago. Um, we have a lot of small cow-calf operations uh, that made sense economically in the economy that existed a long time ago. And that in, we have not kept up with the changing economy. So um, economies of scale matter in the livestock world for a whole lot of reasons. And this is one very small reason uh, among many larger reasons. Um, so, and the other thing we have to acknowledge is that we have not historically recognized the amount of skill that goes into things like herding cattle. Um, the, the, for some reason, the agricultural world has never had parity in what we pay our labor. Um, for some reason, we think we're exempt from just about every labor law that exists in this country. Um, uh, and I think we probably need to come to terms with that in some real way. Um, I don't know many ranchers who have actually heard of the 40-hour work week yet. Uh, but those are some big issues within our ranching culture that I think we need to deal with uh, in a bigger picture. And when we do, it'll help us figure out some of these, these other things that are, you know, in all honesty, for most ranchers, these are the small issues, the predation that we're talking about, but they take up a lot of our mind space because we feel so strongly about them. Um, so in, in any case, uh, to circle back to that, I, you're absolutely right. There's economies of scale when it comes to herding cattle um, because it takes a lot of cattle to 
pay for a cowboy. Uh, in the case of the ranch that I was on, we were able to pay my salary by the number of cattle we ran. And by that, I mean that we were able to run more cattle because of our grazing management than we could have without that grazing management. So the labor I was doing, uh, and a lot of this was, uh, when I say labor, I mean like, you know, fixing fences, building fences, maintaining fences, um, uh, whether that's barbed wire or poly wire, um, and, and then the effort of actually moving the cattle around. Um, it, but the major benefit of that for us didn't have anything to do with predators. It was the fact that we were able to use that landscape so much more efficiently that we were able to run about one and a half to two times as many cattle on it just because we made more of those acres usable than would have been had we not done the management. So that was kind of, and, and I think for most ranches in the West, that's true. Uh, most of us are not using our, we're not harvesting our entire landscape very efficiently. So, um, and that's the major reason why rotational grazing works so well out in the real world, but not always in the science world is because, and it's that economy of scale issue. Um, so it, it's a way to deal with scale issues on a real complex landscape. And when you try to boil that down to a research study, for example, you usually control out all the variables that made it effective in the first place. And then you don't necessarily see the difference between rotating and not rotating. So, um, so to bring that back around, um, and in the case of a ranch where we had several hundred cattle, it, that labor paid for itself, but it really depends on what that person's doing. Like if all, if I had only been looking for potential predators, putting out trail cameras, things like that, <laughs> it would not have paid for itself. Um, so uh, another way to look at that is, um, in ranching for profit, they suggest that one person should be able to handle um, more than several hundred head, uh, closer to a thousand head, I think. Um, and of course, that just depends on the value of every animal, the value of every animal unit month of grazing, uh, and the value of every day of labor. Uh, but you're right, to, to make it all work, most of these places are are too small and their best bet in the long run would be to figure out how to amalgamate herds so that no one, so that not every ranch needs to incur the same expense of hiring range riders. Yeah. I think your point about distribution is good. Uh, you know, one of the claims made by advocates of rotational grazing or holistic plan grazing that is often um, mocked is the idea that you can increase the stalking rate. And I think the assumption is that the claim is being made that the amount of per acre production is going up, forage production is going up, and therefore stalking rate can be increased. But at least in the West, uh, I, I see very directly exactly what you were talking about, that in any kind of a large landscape, there are going to be a whole lot of places um, you know, by virtue of topography or distance from water or, you know, whatever that, that have a lot of forage that would just never get grazed if you had animals that were uh, continuously grazing, for lack of a better term. If you have, you know, what ought to be 
an appropriate conservative stocking rate, but no efforts at animal distribution, uh, there's going to be a whole lot of places that ever get touched and a lot of places that are going to be hammered. And uh, you could significantly increase the number of animals that could be sustained if they were actually accessing more of the acres on a large piece of ground. And you really, the only way to get there, uh, especially on a really large landscape where fencing is cost prohibitive, would be to herd the animals. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. And that might very well pay for itself. Mm -hmm. Right. That's exactly what I found both on that ranch I was on and the, the research that I've done over my career is that that's pretty much the explanation for most of the debate about whether rotational grazing works or not. It, it does if you're if you're using it to deal with distribution problems, uh, but you don't necessarily need to grow more grass in order to harvest more grass. Stuart, are there some things that you want to talk about that we haven't gotten to? Uh, we're coming up on time, and so I wanted to give you the last word here. Yeah, well... Um... I don't know if I deserve the last word, but uh, <laughs> I'll add to that that conversation about it, economy a, a bit. In that, um, you know, we're one of the things that that is really really lacking is an understanding of uh, cost benefits of these different management techniques, um, be they carnivore management or livestock management. Um, you know, and that uh, that's a that's an area that deserves quite a bit of attention. Um, to figure out, you know, for, for those producers, like, what well, what is it that makes sense? You know, and, and um, there may be times when it's like, as Matt said, predation is not a, a huge issue. Um, and so it doesn't make sense to do a whole lot of work associated with managing carnivores or, or what have you um, in, in putting some cost benefit to those, those types of uh, um, questions is, is really important, you know, other because there could be situations where it makes sense to do um, to do lethal control or or not or you know to, to focus more on non-lethal methods and so um, that's a it's a you know kind of a big void right now um, that deserves quite a bit of attention. Good enough, Matt. Anything else you want to add? Oh yeah, you know I would just say one thing is. Um, when we talk about all the various tools, I think it's important not to think of it just in terms of whether they're lethal or non-lethal, because that it sets up a sort of a false dichotomy where ultimately we're going to need both the lethal and the non-lethal tools. And if we can figure out how to use the non-lethal ones preventatively, we'll need less of the lethal ones. And, and to me, that's what coexistence ultimately looks like. It doesn't mean that it's always going to be peaceful and bloodless. It just means that we're going to figure out how to have a West that still has a livestock industry, hopefully one that's doing better than it is now, and a West that also has its native predators again. And to me, that's coexistence. Matt Barnes, Stuart Breck, this has been a, a really useful conversation, I think, and we'll try to get it out there in time for people to apply it during the season in which we tend to have predator and livestock conflicts. Uh, Thank you for your time today. You bet. Thank you, Tip. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. 
For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Thank you.